Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. My name is Ed Krasnick. I'll be your co-host, and I'll be your co-pilot. Piloting the plane with me today is my co-host, the great Jennifer Kalari. She's joining us in just a minute here. And this is the show where we practice mental health skills with comics, entertainers, performing artists, directors, actors, producers, all kinds of funny people. We unite mental health and comedy. But we do it as a practice because mental health is a practice. It's something that you practice like basketball. I'm no good at basketball. I'm not great at mental health, but I'm learning. I'm practicing. And when it comes to mental health, we're all children. No one is ahead. No one is behind. We're all learning the same way. How our brain works, everything, it's all happening here. Today, we have a special guest. We have a guest who is uh, from Canada, very popular all over the world, especially in Canada, his home, and that's comedian Ron James. Has a new book called All Over the Map, and we're going to talk to him about being all over the map. We're going to talk about a few things today. Do you compare yourself to other people sometimes, constantly? Do you care more about what other people think of you than what you think about yourself? Do you feel like you're surviving or living? Those are things that are on my mind, and I want to get it off my chest today before I take my drugs for the day. And I'll be taking them. They're in a lazy Susan full of pills. Spin it to everything. Turn, turn, turn. Now, today's show is sponsored by Shame on You. Shame on You is the new shampoo that's specifically designed to deal with shame. There's no need to be embarrassed about what you feel. Now with the new flower essences and mood stabilizers, you can wash your shame right out of your hair. It's available in serotonin smoothie, dopamine dulce de leche, and neocortex nougat. Get shame off you with shame on you. The new, uh, the new shampoo. Oh boy, hang on everybody. Hang on. That was the call coming in from the shame based uh, from the people suing me about the name. Okay, now we always welcome our listeners to the show. No matter what emotional state you're in, here are emotional shout outs. If you drop your kids off at school while singing, if you're unhappy and you know it, clap your hands. Welcome. If your therapist is so bored that they pull out a home ice cream maker during your session, welcome. If you're still coming down off the high of Yom Kippur, welcome. If you thought The Night of the Living Dead was a documentary, welcome. If you have a true crime Spotify playlist, welcome. If you're playing a game called Hide and Go Eat, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now it's time once again to welcome our visitor from the North and from the South, the Sultan of Serotonin, the Ninja of the Neocortex, and the dominatrix of dopamine. That's a new one. <laughs> a brand new one. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Kalari is here. Jennifer, first of all, those questions that I was asking myself, I want to go over them with you. Do you feel like you're surviving or living? How, how do you navigate that? How do you know? And how do you navigate? Yeah. And what do you do about it? You know what, Ed? I think there's people who don't even realize that they're surviving, not living. Like they're so immersed in the daily stuff, the heaviness, the density of everything that's going on. And for many people, they don't have a choice. It's literally survival. I don't think they realize that there's a difference. Does that make sense? It does. Because I think that, I think that more, of, much, much, much more of the population, especially now with the pandemic, 
sure. are, are in survival mode. Yes. So the thing is, like, the, like yesterday, last night was a beautiful night. I was driving to a show. It was gorgeous. The windows were open. And all of a sudden, I realized, boy, I'm really just happy to be here. I'm just happy to be here. I don't have any, like, in this moment. That's living. I'm just happy to be yeah. here. And it was yeah. such a high-quality time. I wasn't really doing much of anything. I was driving, and it was a beautiful day. Well, and you know what? That's the thing. We think sometimes life has to be about getting that thing we're searching for or that thing that we want or that job that we want or that car we want or whatever it is. But it's, sometimes it's just that. The wind on your face, enjoying the moment. It's being present. We talk about that all the time, Ed, and it, it truly is the key to thriving, not surviving, is enjoying the smaller moments and being aware of them. So often we are thinking, what am I doing next? What do I have to do after that? What terrible things happened to me? How are they coming into my life today? This per- I'm mad at this person. This person's mad at me. And you, you, the wind's blowing in your face. You don't even notice it. And that's actually the key, as, as simple as it sounds, to living and surviving, and not just surviving, but thriving. Surviving is you're up on cortisol the whole time. You have the energy of a hummingbird. You're, you're humming along and you're trying, you're trying, you're trying. In your head, you're believing that nothing's going to work out and that mm-hmm. you don't deserve anything. Okay, so that's the belief. My question is, without a lot of therapy, without years of exploration, how do you shift it? It's interesting because so much of what we talk about seems so simple that it, it, people, I'm sure, think like, how could that even be the answer? But it is literally pulling yourself into being present. It's that mindfulness. It's feeling the breeze on your face. It's tasting how perfect your coffee turned out. It's realizing that somebody gave you their parking spot. Like it could be the smallest things and just taking that time to sit there and literally say, isn't that nice? Isn't this pleasant? This is a nice moment. And slowing down your brain enough to just notice those moments. Now, when your kid's being cute, when something funny is happening versus, I don't have time for that. We got to go. It's really about sort of pulling ourselves out of our story all the time. So many of us, if not all of us, walk around telling our story in our own head all the time. No one ever listens to me. This never works out. That never works out. This person's mad at me. I'm never going to have enough money for that. And there are people who have so little absolutely little, but they are so rich. And I, this is such a famous quote, and I don't remember who said it, but some people are so poor, they only have money. I think that's such a great quote. Yeah. It is actually those simple things, those beautiful moments that all of us can enjoy, no matter what's happening. I guess I would encourage people to have a conversation, you know, yeah. have a conversation with anybody, somebody reach out and actually create it say, um, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about some stuff. What's going on? Talk about some stuff. And 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 you know what? And don't tell, don't tell the negative part of your story. Don't make it be about a litany of things that you're complaining about They're, I'm sure they are real and I'm sure they bother you and I'm sure they hurt, but try to check in with the other person, see how they are, or just talk about things that feel good or are pleasant or neutral or lovely. And the same is true for the self-talk, the way you parent yourself. And talk to yourself, go neutral, go with something that you want. I mean, these are all ways to get out of the constant survival and the efforting, which doesn't have to be there. I mean, of course, you have to pay your bills. You have to live. You have to do things. But that's not a constant efforting. That, That doesn't require effort. That requires imagination. If you imagine how you want your life to be 
and you allow yourself to sit with that feeling, you will be pulled towards what that is. I'm not trying to do laws of attraction. I'm saying you have an imagination. Why not feel good for a minute a day? Yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to feel bad about stuff. I'm not saying you can't. It's just don't dwell there. Don't stay there. Don't have to. Don't have to. Another thing is the comparison. Okay. We just came off the Emmy Awards in LA. I'm -hmm. looking at the show. (laughs) A good percentage of the people I know I've worked with in some aspect, many of them. And I'm looking at them accepting Emmy Awards and Mm -hmm. going to a big party. I'm not putting myself down, but I'm like, how do you get away from, you know, how do you feed yourself while you're, while you're watching the Emmy Awards? Ed, what do you mean? Like when you're watching the Emmy Awards, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, how how am I not comparing? Yeah. Like that. I I worked with this. I worked with this person. They're on stage with uh, in dressed up and they're accepting an award in front of the world. Right. Right. It's not happening to me right now. So first step is let yourself feel crappy that it's not happening to you. That's okay. It's okay. This is how it feels to feel like someone, you know, and you know, you're as good as them is having this experience. And I am not. Let yourself feel it. That's the first thing. And that's where we often go wrong is we either turn it into bitterness or we try to distract ourselves or drink it away or smoke it away or do something, but allow yourself that because that's a hard feeling. And then, and this is the really tricky part. And this is, you can apply this to relationships, to people that have money and other people that don't, or people that get a job and, and you didn't get that job. It doesn't have to be Hollywood stuff. But when you look at something that you want and the primary feeling in your body is upset, your subconscious mind goes, well, that's bad. I don't want my person to have that experience. So I'm going to keep anything like that away from him because it's clearly not good. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're saying welcome the feeling. Yeah. Welcome 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 the the feeling. And also how wonderful for them. And I'm, I'm sure you're very happy for them, but of course, let's take an example. Let's say somebody wanted to have a relationship and they see everybody else getting married and they see people walking down the street and their first thought is, oh, why isn't that me? The midbrain only thinks in metaphors and emotion and vibration. Basically, that's how the brain works. So now the brain sees a couple walking hand in hand on the street and makes the association as of, I'm upset about that. My person, my frontal lobe, my, my sense of self associates that with something negative. And the subconscious mind just wants to make you happy. It just wants you to keep you alive. And it thinks, well, relationships are bad. They make them upset every time they see them. Let's do everything we can to put some distance between me and relationships. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're watching all these people and your primary feeling is upset or upheaval or jealousy or, and I'm not just saying you, Ed, but anything. Now your subconscious mind goes, oh, that kind of success, bad it will start to interfere with inspiration, ideas that you have, places that you're going to allow yourself go to go, networking that you're going to allow yourself to be open to. So much of this comes down to limiting beliefs and beliefs that we either just accept culturally or you know just messages we've been told about what, what's attractive and what's not. And it comes down to challenging those beliefs in yourself. So here's, here's the hard part. Let yourself feel bad. And then how phenomenal that that person and, and just be, try to channel nothing but love for them that they have that. Now your subconscious goes, oh, okay, that's not a threat. That's not a bad thing. That's something that my person is actually happy about. And then your subconscious mind and your limiting beliefs 
you have a chance at least to move them out of the way. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm wondering what I'm going to do with all my resentment time, because I have, uh, I have a resentment area in my house, and I'm wondering how I'm going to decorate it now. Now, I, I, you know, because I need a lot of time. I worry in place. Uh, I, yeah. I stand in the yoga pose called Warrior Two. Warrior. That's two. awesome. Yeah, I stand but in you, Warrior Two. Yeah, go ahead. You know what's interesting about all of this, though? This becomes very habitual. We aren't even aware that we're doing it. It's just mm-hmm. how we live. We don't even question it anymore. We don't not even ask ourselves questions about it. And when I work with clients who start to move through their limiting beliefs or they start to feel less anxious, it's almost like the brain is like, what are you doing? Why aren't you resenting something right now? Why aren't you anxious right now? You should. And it'll, it'll literally go on a search around your brain. It will literally go through every box and throw everything until it finds something that you can then start obsessing about and off you go again. Like it is a force that you have to learn how to rewire and overcome. And it's not easy. I mean, we talk about that all the time on the show. It is a practice and it does take time, but so much of these are programs that are running and just habitual thinking. The brain is an instrument. Play it. That, yeah. who, who said that? Ed Krasnick said it right here on the Krasnick. mental health comedy podcast. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, this is really good. We're, we're going to have a great conversation with our guest coming up. We'll, we'll touch on all these themes with him, too. This gentleman is a fixture in every home in Canada, also around the world, but in Canada especially, his native home. He has nine comedy specials, had a big series, comedy series on the CBC, has a new book called All Over the Map, which is about his experience as a comedian on the road and a kid growing up in Nova Scotia. Please welcome Ron James to the show. Ron, you're Hi, in, a pleasure to meet you. And, and, you, and you're, in, you're in Toronto now, right? I am, yes. I have, uh, I have weathered the plague here for most of the time, other than a, a sojourn in my original province of uh, Nova Scotia, the summer of 2020, when it had the, uh, the moniker of being the safest place in the world to ride out the plague. Then for a short time, I was there this summer, but mostly I've been in Toronto. Sure. Yeah. And Toronto, not the safest place. It was bad in the beginning, just like everywhere, but it never got to the stage that New York did, for instance. During the, during the third wave in April, uh, there was worry that the healthcare system would collapse with 15,000 cases a day and the rollout of vaccines, it was stalled. And uh, anyway, we've bounced back, and now it's the province of Alberta in the West with their libertarian, anti-mask, anti-vax, me, Trump's, we philosophy has bit them in the ass much as it did everything south of the Mason-Dixon line. It's roaring back with a vengeance with hospitals at their capacity. Well, usually I feel pretty bad as an American. I feel bad about what we're doing. And now I feel like maybe we're, maybe we're not doing such a bad job. No, we are. The thing is that the whole world shares equally. Is yeah, I the, agree. You know, is the, is the ability to create problems and the ability to solve problems. I'm talking like JFK here for a second. But I, I want to talk to you about, you know, you wrote this book all over the map. And yeah. this is about your life. It's about your childhood. It's about all, all kinds of personal things. Do you touch on mental health in the book and what 
role does mental health play in your life and in your in your comedy in your career at this point? I touch on my uh, ADHD, for instance, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Yeah, and I was diagnosed with that a couple of years ago. But um, I've had my bouts of depression, mild, not deep ones. When I've talked to friends who've been debilitated deeply by depression, I know that it's never been. Uh, that with me, you know, you have a breakup with a girlfriend and you realize that, you know, your shortcomings are are still here that you thought you jettisoned when you separated and from your marriage of 23 years. So, you know, I mean, I've lost a marriage, uh, I, thankfully, and uh, the good Lord has seen fit to, uh, you know, uh, to keep my daughters in my company and we're really good pals. And but life is hard, as the Buddhists say. This awareness of mental health is crucial these days. I'm a 60, soon be 64. I had uh, a vital and vibrant uh, teenage years with my house packed with friends and family and relatives. And crossing my parents' threshold, it was the quintessential Celtic kitchen where everybody came in and played music and told stories. And uh, that's not my life now. And so you do miss a circle of friends. And I see that a, a, a psychologist uh, in Britain has just written a book uh, called The Lonely Century, Norena Hertz. That's what I love about the road is it gives me a sense of, of belonging. It allows me to line up the planets and make sense of the chaos we're walking through in the language of laughs, just like I used to when I was surrounded by friends and family. And I chose to raise my family in Toronto, and it was a great city to learn my craft. I started in the Second City organization way back in the 80s on 110 Lombard Street. It was the iconic old fire hall, and that features in the book as well. And then did my three years in Los Angeles chasing the sitcom dream and came back and became a stand-up. But it was a shift of the psychic paradigm, a tectonic shift, actually. I like to say that an improv troupe is uh, the same as half a dozen Bolsheviks trying to decide the color of a tractor on a communist farm. Well, stand-up is an enlightened dictatorship. The rewards were manifest. I, I managed to pull a career up from the muck myself, traveling the frozen lip of Lake Superior in February, dodging logging trucks, threatening to bounce me into the afterlife. And I stayed the course because the club scene was so lean in Canada. And then that eventually led to a special. And then that eventually led to nine one-hour specials and a series. But the network infrastructure and its Machiavellian minefields one had to negotiate in order to be heard were taxing. And so that's what I also write about is the purity of the stage. But nothing comes for free when you follow your bliss. And it's one of the quotes in my book, Follow Your Bliss, of course, Joseph Campbell, Billy Connolly's quote, Chase Fame, See What That Does to Your Soul, and the great Canadian poet Al Purdy, take a look at this country. It's not what you think it is. Look again. Wow, and so wow. it's been this wonderful window on another world of people sharing their heart stories with me. I call it the soul note, the heartline hum. It's funny, I'd be talking to you today at this crossroads of my life, stepping into the third chapter and reinventing myself again after COVID and again trying to process the trauma that we've all been through without 
dragging everybody through the muck again of what we have experienced by bringing it all up. It's going to be an interesting time for comedians. But I've always looked at this as, uh, you know, I hit the stage shortly after 9-11 and nobody wanted to touch that. It was the elephant in the room and I found a way through it. And I think with concentration, I'll find a way through this too. But to answer your initial question, uh, mental health has been, its issues have been through my family. My mother's side were uh, suffered from it. They're full-blown OCD. Uh, she's the last one left. She's 89. And, you know, I would say my father's side suffered from a certain amount of PTSD brought on from losing his father to ALS during World War II. His older brothers in the Corvette Navy protecting the convoys. That hit one of them later on in life. So I've been around it. It's been undiagnosed. And trust me, it's been medicated the wrong way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I'm cognizant of all this. And I'm trying my best to be better tomorrow than I am today. Well, the, li- the life of a comic is very, uh, especially on the road, there's a lot of isolate isolation. And this is before COVID. Now, since, of course, everybody's isolated and can understand, you know, what it's like to feel isolated. It sounds like you love the show and you love connecting with people and you love creating that sense of community with your comedy. But what do you do the rest of the hours when you're not doing that? Well, I always kept a very strict health regimen. I always have um, a routine in the morning, which is uh, a cup of coffee, a banana, some yogurt, and I would go for a run before I blew my knee out. But now um, I'm going to bring a bike with me and I'll go for a bike ride, nice long bike ride. And I usually do anywhere between six to eight K every day. Then I'd come back, I'd have lunch and I'd write in the afternoon. I'd crack the newspapers of the town I'm in and, and try to customize something for the show that night. Or else I'd go to a coffee shop and sometimes I'd go to a coffee shop and people would just start talking to me, you know, and this is even before I had notoriety in TV. So I kept the moleskin in the days before social media. Uh, That's how I wrote my book. Uh, I went back to my journals and all these conversations that I diligently recorded after, I mean, wrote down after they'd spoken to me, ended up in the book. I knew that there was something holy, something more to my journeys than just my gig. But then I'd come home, you know, after the road and, you know, we'd be getting in arguments 48 hours later. You know, it was just, it just seemed like a duality that was just dysfunctional. And the road was so redemptive and so rewarding. And then I'd come back and it wouldn't work, you know? Yeah. So, so, so so how do you know when to let go of of a marriage? How do you do that? Well, having an affair certainly helped being found out. Yeah, that helped. Well, there you go. Yeah, that, was, that was a stupid move. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was I fell for the woman and I, we were working hand in glove all the time. And I prioritized that and the road over, over my domestic life. And I was in the belly of the whale for a long time. Mm. But I, I separated uh, in early in April 9th, uh, 2009. And I started really and I walked into filming my series uh 10 days later wow it was really really it was really really hard but you know i had a good um i had a good doctor to talk to at the time and um i finally got on ciprolex which was very helpful it evened it out and my hard work evened out and um, i ate well i didn't drink alcohol and uh, i focused on the task at hand because i knew that someday i i wanted my kids to be proud of me i wanted to show them that i 
I was capable of being better at life than I was at marriage. So the house was tense, probably, and things did, were not going well, I'm guessing, when you were married. And how do you transition that relationship to the relationship that you have with your kids now? You accept responsibility. You listen. You listen to them. Accept your faults. And you try as best you can to embrace your strengths without being too hard on yourself. But I mean, you know, we're comedians. We have to be hard on ourselves, man. You can't put a half-ass setup there. It's got to be perfect. Right. That's, that's one of the things of our profession is, you know, an open-heart surgeon can't forget to put a stitch in. Right. And so I think we have to, um, I think we have to find a balance between recognizing our imperfections and, and uh, embracing our strengths. If I could do it over again, I would have tried harder if I could do it over again, but you can't. How, 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 do you, how does your mental state affect your performance and your comedy and your writing? Your writing and then your live, your, your actual stand-up and actual performance? Yeah, well, I'm not, from the, I'm not from the school of uh, uh, the non-laughing, brooding comedian by any stretch. I think you have to be in a positive state of mind to debunk the shibboleths of the world. I know that sounds contradictory that you have to be in a positive state of mind to be critical. You just can't see the badness in everything all the time. Comedy's role is to strip away the veneer to get at the kernel of the truth. I'd rather people leave my show feeling lighter in step than uh, feeling like I put another brick on their back. It's the comedian's job to lighten the journey, not make it heavier. If you've seen any of my specials, I mean, I've done nine of them. There's um, a lightheartedness to them. There's a frivolity to them. There's a physicality to them. But there's also a point to them, a point of view. I think that's why they were popular. And uh, I had a couple of great collaborators as well, writers, in my last four anyway. First five I wrote myself. But it's interesting, you know, how, how people, how an artist changes as he grows as a person. His comedy begins to reflect that. Wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. You wrote when you were a 25-year-old kid or 30-year-old kid. It's, I mean, you know, I used to do jokes about, you know, trying to take the family on vacation when the kids needed to pee every 10 miles, and, you know, when you're in the car. And, yeah, I just can't do those kinds of jokes anymore. And, of course, the existential angst that seems to prevail today with everybody. I mean, anxiety through the roof. There's an absolutely, God bless the millennials. Gee, at least I could plan for the future and think that I might have one. But my gosh, my daughter's in Toronto in terms of hopes of buying a home. It's, it's, it's an infinitesimal dream. And not everybody can be an engineer or a stockbroker to find hope and, and the positive and, and to keep going is an important message, I think, for comedians to uh, deliver. Do you do and, uh, and you do it through characters too? I mean, I know a lot of a lot of you're watching your clips and watching the shows, and I know you worked with some fr old friends of mine, Linda Cash from Second City, is an old friend, yeah, and I yeah. saw her. I saw her in a couple of your couple of your shows. Now you're going to go out. You're going to. Uh, I mean, are there plans to to go on a book tour? Uh, what do you do during COVID? Well, nobody's going to work tour now. Um, yeah, uh, it's they're going to be mostly virtual. But uh, I just got uh, yesterday, just yesterday, my producer, we had had an Ontario, province of Ontario tour planned. And I only play theaters. I played them for 20 years. I moved out of the clubs after five years. 
We have a tour of Atlantic Canada, which is great. We've got a dozen dates there. And then I'm going to British Columbia with a dozen more dates. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed. We get some encore dates in that mix. Well, how do you deal with, uh, you know, I'm going to bring up the issue of race in the world and diversity. And how do you deal with that as a, you know, comedy now, people are not in the mood (laughs) for a sense of satire. It all depends how you negotiate that terrain. I think you have to negotiate it with conviction and compassion. I mean, we have some serious issues that have to be dealt with in Canada with regard to the discovery of the residential school graves, for instance. That's one thing that I'll, I'll try to deal with and the, the role of, of government in, and its complicity with the Catholic Church. You know, settler privilege and the colonial mandate and the necessity to rewrite the national narrative are imperative mandates we have to adhere to if the country's going to move to the right side of history. Mm-hmm. You, you had a guy in America for four years who marched you backwards, and that ended up on January 6th on Capitol Hill. We have our own form of this reactionary refusal to look at historic truths. I grew up in Halifax, a very racialized city. It's got the oldest black population in Canada. They came in 1755 to build um, fortifications. And then afterwards, after the American Revolution, of course, all the black loyalists came up, right, who who fought for Britain. And they were ripped off. Uh, They were thrown into crappy lands and the edges of the city. And they had a a squatter's uh, town called Africville that was raised by city fathers in 1966. These truths have to be looked at, but... I played football uh, growing up. There was a black and white together, and there was a great uh, there was a great camaraderie between us. And I find that if people live side by side and understand each other in that way, then the polarities aren't aren't quite as severe. But the biggest thing in Canada that separates us from you, I think, is the the weaponization of that gun culture, you know, gun yeah. culture isn't, isn't as big here and there's pockets of it, but, and although we have had our shootings, you know, I mean, the Montreal shooting in the mosque, the shootings in with uh, ISIL in, in Toronto, the worst shooting of all time in my home province of Nova Scotia a year ago. So uh, Canadians used to be smug and pointing the finger south of the border, but there's issues that we have to deal with, but, if I could just say that at least America had a predisposition for the rebel voice. Uh, when you're sired through two civil wars, really, that's what the Revolutionary War was. It was really a civil war. And then the Civil War itself, and then the subsequent historic grievances that came from there. You, were, you guys were always hitting the streets. You know, you're hitting the streets. You're, you're bearing arms against the man, so to speak. The rebel voice is part of the American ethos where, you know, Canada, peace, order and good government. That translates to have fun, but keep the noise down or we'll call the cops. Mm-hmm. Where uh, America's peace or, uh, is a life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. It's just like hookers and blow this way, bro. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's party central. And I think that's why Canadian comedians travel to the States is that we can have the opportunity to tip the apple cart in a country of 375 million people, not tip the apple cart of 37 million people 
with uh, at times a dysfunctional deference to authority. Hmm, a different, and that's where the uh, that's where the politeness, the kind of the polite culture yeah. comes from. Yeah. That's what it's yeah, about. Absolutely. It's historical. It's historical. I, yeah. Well, look. Yeah, come on. I mean, uh, Canada was uh, our two countries were born entirely differently. Canada's delivery was, a, you know, birth was a benign delivery from the womb of Mother Britain, while America's was a crack baby breech birth that chewed off its own umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, diametrically opposite. You know, we had uh, windbag lawyers in mutton chops, eating lobsters and drinking hooch and PEI. You guys had stirring catchphrases, give me liberty or give me death. These are the times that try men's souls. Mm-hmm. While in Canada, our catchphrase for years was everybody loves Tim Hortons. <laughs> and you have Gordon, you had Gordon Lightfoot. Um, yeah, but, Gordy, but Gordy is a poet troubadour. I'm looking right. for a catchphrase. That's right. That's right. You can't, it's hard to get a catch. Am I making sense, Jen? You straddle both countries. I do. Yes, you are. You're making a lot of sense. And there's just, there's a lot to unpack. What, how do you speak? You speak, you speak to this. I mean, you, you know, Ron's work uh, from, from being there and, and uh, how do you speak to this, uh, this whole, well, first of all, let me just say this. It's pretty refreshing to hear a guy come out and say, you know, I made this error, I made this mistake, I own up to it, and I've learned from it. Yeah, and this is it. But so straight, you know, not not a lot of words about it, but just very straight up. What What do you think about that, Jennifer? Oh, I I made some notes. I think that's so wonderful. That's really the key in many ways, actually, moving on in your life and actually making everything a lesson. You can either be a victim and blame everybody and make it someone else's fault, or you can own your stuff. And that that's what actually helps you carry forward. And that's, I think, Ron, why your kids would be proud of you because we all make mistakes and being able to own that strongly and not with, not out of fear, just out of strength, I think is such a good example. You know, humans are messy. We're messy. We make all kinds of mistakes and, and to be able to own them and I just better. like to get that stone out of my chest. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, wow. but you know yeah. what, Ron? So many people don't. They blame other people. It wasn't my fault. It was her. It was this. It was that. And and it just then you just carry it around for your whole life, and you don't grow, and you don't move on, right? I mean, we say all the time in the show that part of what carries you forward and keeps you healthy is to basically just go through life as a student and a learner rather than a victim. Right. And that's really where your power lies. So I was really struck by that. And then, I mean, as we talk about our two countries, I mean, uh, there's a lot of trauma on both sides. Yeah, there is a lot of trauma. And yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there's gutless leadership, too. I'm not saying everyone's perfect. My father used to have a phrase. There was one perfect man, Ronnie, and they crucified him. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like you say, all humans are messy. And but uh, I think I'm tired of the obvious partisanship and manipulation of our emotions and the reluctance to the reluctance to lead. I mean, it's very complex. Look, it's election day here today. And, ah. you know, it, it's a mess. We don't even know what the election's about. You know what? I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like it to be about homelessness. I'd like it to be about how we're going to pay for uh, the pandemic without, you know, uh, taxing, you know, without it being dropped like a bomb later. No one said anything about it. Climate change is an issue. Suzuki, Atwood, Ondaatje. They've all come out and said, look, you have to talk about this, man. I mean, yeah. it's, it's an issue that the, yeah. the West Coast burned to the ground this summer. 
Yeah, it's pretty strong. And Ron, you talked about something so interesting because I'm a therapist and I work with kids all the time and eco-anxiety, I can't even tell you it is going through the roof. It where, must you know, be, hey? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's More little things. kids that can't sleep thinking, is there going to be a world for me? Well, I children. I mean, th- this mm. is what they carry around that we really didn't have to. And mm. it's a big thing. I mean, anxiety in general is is wild right now. But you have to carry it around. All I wanted to do was, you know, get my paper route so I could save up enough money for a pair of Adidas, not two striped North Stars. Exactly. Right. That, that's what it's supposed to be. That's yeah. what a childhood is supposed to be. Well, that is not what right? it is right now. Right? Are we going camping this summer? Yeah, we are. Excellent. Good. Maybe right. I'll learn to swim above my head. Yeah. yeah, I remember hanging around in the summer days being so long. And I remember, I just remember, truth, I just remember being bored. I remember Me being too. bored and you had yeah. to deal with two weeks of August. You had to deal with boredom. It was like part of this, life. by the way, is so good for you. And it's good for kids. Actually, what we do now with kids is we stick devices in their hands and keep them busy and being bored and learning to entertain yourself. Play actually really play. Not well, they can't, on a video game, but they, like with each other. They can't they <laughs> can't go. they can't go out. You cannot let a kid out. And tell them, you know, see you later. We'll walk come in when the come back at lunch. On. There you go. <laughs> come in it. when the street lights yeah. come on. That's what you we cannot heard. do that. You can't no, do no. that. And right away, kids don't have agency. So where are they going to turn? It's almost like you have to rebuild the idea of a community and build the safety into it. Almost like build a place that's like communal where kids can actually move, where they have well, some I sense of agency. I guess that's why they have gated communities, isn't it? I can understand. You know, I can understand it. I'm not letting my daughter. My daughter's not walking to around here by herself. I can't do yeah, it. Where are you at, Ed? New York? I'm in, I'm in Marina Del Rey. I'm in L.A. Oh, L.A. Yeah. Yeah. I lived uh, when I was there for three years. I was in uh, I was just off Topanga down by Oxnard. And I have beautiful. friends in Marina Del Rey. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, yeah. Beautiful. But but now up and the ups and downs is shaky town. So you came here. Yeah. As a young, you know, as a young man and you moved here and they're giving away sitcoms and all of that kind yeah. of stuff is happening. What happened to you and what did you take away from it? First of all, it was co-created by Linda Cash, your friend and a friend of mine, Deb McGrath, who was married to the brilliant improviser Colin Mockery. Ah. And so we, we were in Second City at the time it was created and, and Andrew Alexander, the impresario of Second City, sold it to Imagine TV, Ron Howard's company. And I was a member of the cast. And then uh, there was a shift in the uh, management of Imagine. The person who liked our show got the boot. Another person came in and there was a pogrom, a gutting of the cast. And three of us were left by the time the dust cleared. Went down there and did it. We shot six half hour shows a week. It was sold to uh, independent channels at night. We improvised it. It was like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, only my talk show. It was set in the fictional Derby, Wisconsin, where this lady had a talk show from the couch of her living room and people came in to chat with her. <laughs> Celebrities of the day, Rob Weller, Jim Belushi, Martin Mull, you know, people like that. Crystal Fan- Gale, fantastic. Uh, whose assistant had hair just as long as her, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, pretty bizarre. I got to talk to Tiny Tim, though, about Ronnie Ke- uh, about Davey Keon being the best right winger in the NHL. That was pretty surreal. <laughs> Dave Keon, Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Sure. And Tiny Tim, too. It was yeah. wild, man. Pretty funny. Anyway, I put the story in my book about talking to Chubby Checker, how Chubby Checker's American dream went south when his business manager stole the idea for mock chicken. 
<laughs> Wrap your head around that one, folks. That's huh? kind of fun. That's kind of fun. Uh, yeah. we, so, you wouldn't so, dream that one up during an ayahuasca ceremony somewhere in Ecuador. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm ready for that, we, though. Yeah, we were right. in Newsweek on Tuesday. We were can- as the show to watch. Our picture was in Newsweek on Tuesday. We were canceled on Thursday. And Monday, I was pulled on a tree at a Robert Urich's front yard with my buddy's father's landscaping company. So I was out of work for about a year and two months, going to audition after audition after audition, 87 of them, I guess. Mm. I finally landed a commercial, went deeper and deeper into debt. And I think that was the beginning of the Fishers in our marriage. I don't think we ever really did rebound from that. But I uh, started going up to Venture Boulevard Coffee House Amateur Nights. I just started writing. I say this, this is one of the bits from my act, but I said I... I shared the uh, amateur night stage with uh, the illegitimate spawn of the Charles Manson clan who wandered down from their Chatsworth Warrens with their poetry and prose looking for the love that Charlie never gave. You know, uh, when you're following somebody who says they've been abducted by aliens and have the scars to prove it, you know, you're in a different world of wonders. But I started reading those stories. A different world of wonders, Ron. There you go, bro. And I started reading my stories and these people of disparate hopes and dreams came up to me afterwards and said, that was amazing. How did you manage to capture the essence of California with where you're from? Where is it? Nova Scotia. So that was the beginning of up and down in shaky town, one man's journey through the California dream. And I brought it back to Toronto. I wrote it and I was scared to death to write it. I didn't think I had the, uh, the right to put it up. Uh, I didn't think I had the right to sing my song, even though my wife uh, had encouraged me to. She said, look, when we go back to Canada, you have to do it differently. And I did it. And I got three great reviews. And then I pulled the best jokes out of that. And I had a beginning, middle and an end, a very strong narrative. And it was self-written. I mean, you go down, you stay, come back. I mean, it was all there. The structure was built in anyway. And I started Amateur Night at this great little club called the Laugh Resort. I did that for six months and then got my first check in 1995. And I continued to bang away at stand-up and I'm still doing commercials, you know. I was still in the acting loop, but then I uh, kept at it, just on the road, uh, doing lean club circuits, you know, working for beer tickets at, for sarcastic comedy snobs at the Rivoli. You know, those back of the room, they're just like dilettante beatniks who don't laugh at anything. I started booking myself. It was the fight for food, and I had people to support. And I got sick and tired of waiting for somebody in Los Angeles to validate my life. Mm. And that's what I learned in L.A., that ultimately the individual is responsible for their own happiness. Mm. Uh, but when that, that phrase of the Enlightenment became corrupted by this Gordon Gecko level of more is not enough. Mm. I knew I'd never achieve what the measurement of success was. And all I really wanted to do was work. Mm. You know, I should have listened to my own own voice, you know, and known that it was work and I shouldn't have been quite as, I mean, you know, you get explosive standing ovations all the time. You're making money hand over fist. You lose perspective. And if COVID has brought me back to anything, it's perspective. The loss of my marriage was one of the worst things that happened to me in my life. But you can't go back. You got to go forward. But the hard work is something to be proud of. I just wish that there hadn't been collateral damage. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So. Jen- Jennifer, these tra- these transitions, 
-hmm. when you deal with families that are going through a divorce mm -hmm. or going through a stressful marriage, mm -hmm. well, how, how do people navigate that? How do you work with people to navigate that kind of transition? Well, listen, it's a, it's a big one, but what I say to families, especially, you know, parents are working with me and they tried and they know that it, it really is time. They have to separate that. They just can't be the best of who they are together anymore for whatever reason. It's not actually divorce. That's so brutal on the kids. It's how you handle the divorce in front of your kids. We were amazing. That makes, that's the difference, Ron. That's the difference, right? When your kid goes to mom's and you're like, oh, your father, rah, 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 and you switch houses and it's oh, your mother. Oh. That's what does the damage. That's what causes the scars, right? So owning your stuff, knowing that you're the parents forever, whether they live in the same home or not, that's what kids need. They need to know that, that they're loved and no matter what, they're at the center. And I've had tons of families that I've worked with that have had, divorce is always tough. It's never easy. But they've been able to do just that, what Ron said, stay friends, co-parent together, put the kids first. And that's what the kids are left with, right? What if you, what if you can't? What, what, what if it seems like you can't? One per, people are at odds. One, well, per, one person wants to... Uh, yeah, you know, well, that's hard, right? I mean, it really is. But whenever you're reacting, whenever you're making it about... And when you're a parent, you have the ultimate responsibility to be there for your kids and help them learn and, and support them while you're going through it. It's hard. I mean, I was going to say quickly before your question that like sometimes couples stay together when they really shouldn't. Yeah. That's really not better. I mean, what do no, kids no. Yeah. There's lonesome and there's lonesome in a marriage. And, yeah. and I have a lot of midlife buddies who will tell me that they're lonesome in their marriage, right? This is endemic as well in society today. Midlife lonesomeness, you know, a lot of my buddies, we were all active, you know, played hockey where, you know, we all got together. We were university pals. And now we're scattered all over the place and we're just friends on Facebook. It's not the same as being brothers in arms yeah. face to face. It's almost like people have become more comfortable communicating in that way, you know, that yeah. it doesn't it doesn't take anything from them. There's no there's yeah. no lesions, you know, there's no imperfections, it's, right? It's it's not a high quality, you know, the word like what kind of a quality of life do you have? If you asked people, are you surviving or living? Mm -hmm. You would get That's a great question. You would get an overwhelming amount of people who would say, I'm surviving. I'm trying not even I'm surviving. I'm trying to survive. Survive. Yeah. Yeah. And then that is not living. You're no. not living. You're not alive. And, no, that, and, and you know, being yeah. alive is being uncomfortable. It's That's being what being alive is. Right? Everything. It's everything. It's all the contours, but ultimately finding lightheartedness, which I love. We were talking about that earlier, Ron, like just finding the humor, finding the connection, finding the common ground that we all have. Um, and to go back to what we're saying, you know, being lonely in a marriage is devastating. It's, it's an awful feeling. And the truth is our own happiness is our own responsibility. And that's sort of what you were saying, Ron, when you decided to leave LA too. Nobody's yeah. going to come down and save you, right? You have to figure out how can I be the best version of myself, constantly learning, constantly growing, taking ownership, moving forward. And that's what children watch you do. That's what your kids watch you do. They can either see you becoming bitter and complaining and it's everyone else's fault, or they can see you doing your best and shining that light. And it sounds corny, but that's all children really want to see from you. And that's the greatest lesson they can have. Well, they grew up to be great women, you know, um, uh, they're 32 and 27 years old and uh, they're out campaigning today for the election Wonderful. and they and they walk the talk. And yes, they are somewhat um, frightened 
to say the least, yep. of, of what the future holds, but uh, they're not fatalistic. I think they believe that that being engaged is important and being engaged on an intellectual level mm-hmm. as well as on an emotional level. And they have two, yeah, they each have a guy who adores them and uh, I'm happy about that. The future now uh, in t- terms of, will you find somebody again who's going to be, I mean, it's like <laughs> my buddy used to have this saying, one of the writers when I'd work with, he said, you meet somebody in your fifties, they don't come at the factory settings intact. <laughs> That's a great call, man. <laughs> That's a great call. Stay yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. If you can stay together. And if you can't, you know, you gotta, you gotta find some way to make it work for you. But when 21% of the world is living alone, right? I mean, it's a huge number. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and even people together are living alone. I mean, yeah. and part of it is devices, right? And social media, mm-hmm. as we were talking about, everyone's so disconnected. And what's interesting is I work with young people. I've watched them, how the normal kind of regular conversation and chit chat and just that sort of movement through conversations is, is getting harder for them. They start to drift, don't they? Yeah. yeah, they don't have to, they, they just don't have to navigate those things online the same way everything's crafted. And I remember being a little kid and growing up around three generations of a Jewish family. And so what happened is when you were a kid growing up, part of your thing was listening to the conversations that people had around the table of food. And that's how you grew up. And you learned a yeah. lot of, you learned a lot of stuff from that, learned how to tell a story learned how people express themselves, learned how to tell yeah. a joke, learned about humor, learned about life. Like Cape Breton. That yeah. sounds like Cape Breton. You it know? does. Just thinking about that with your Celtic kitchen. That's yeah. how you, that's what it's supposed, you know, that's yeah. a community. And I remember actually being a kid and feeling like I was being filled up by the company. Mm-hmm. Like you're actually yes. being filled up, like you're eating a meal and you're full inside and you don't want yeah. for anything. Now people are crazy. And you want to get away from them. You know yeah, but you know what? If there's anything with COVID that's reinforced the necessity of community, it's that you have to take community with all its bumps and bruises. Nothing's perfect. All the contours right. and contrasts. Absolutely. Right. Before COVID, this was already waning because of, of devices and screens and phones, which it's not just kids, by the way. We're, adults are just as addicted as kids are. Yeah. Right. But but the truth, COVID made it, it, it's just made it so much harder, I think. That's my biggest takeaway from our conversation today is that mm. own your stuff, find a way to have that community that it's, it's essential for mental health. We are social beings. Yeah. We're built that way well, as human beings. So. Well, this is the right time to build. Every, everybody, this is really the time to do it that needs to happen. And whether it's a neighborhood, you know, gathering or whether it's being on Zoom with four people that you're that and are all friends on the ba- and put the politics on the back yeah. burner. Yeah. You know, my father yeah. used to he worked for the phone company and he used to have this thing called a bowling banquet. All the fellas, they they'd get together and bowl. And I remember a sociologist wrote a book about 10 years ago called You Can't Bowl Alone. And <laughs> what, but but look, when I think of my house, it was packed with people. Yeah, And they were from PEI, Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, and New Brunswick. And they all came in and they congregated at my father's place because his mother in World War II, uh, in the house that they rented in Halifax, they were Newfoundlanders. That was always the drop-off place for people bound overseas, right? Mm -hmm. And they'd break out the accordions and they'd play the spoons and someone would have a fiddle, right? And even though his father was dying of ALS, they still dropped in and paid their homage. 
and it was a place to hang their hat and put their bags and the day and when dad died his old merchant marine norman crew who passed away at 95 but i talked to him at the age of 91 he said my grandmother was the most hospitable person hospitality plus she was the den mother for everyone Mm -hmm. and then my father in his own way became that for and my mother as well became that for my friends and relatives, right? And my sister and I resented it sometimes. It's like, Jesus, who's coming in now? Just let us play with our Christmas gifts before another dozen people cross the threshold, will you? Right. But it's what I reflect on now, and I try not to get too melancholic about it. I genuinely do miss it because it was uh, was real, and Mm -hmm. it was authentic, and it was the soul note, the heartline hum, and that is the continuity of spirit that I try to tap into when I'm on the road, mm. when I'm performing. It's, so important. Yeah. it's the kitchen. It's mm-hmm. it's the embrace of people and place. Well, we're all trying. We're all trying to get back to the kitchen table. I mean, that's I how that. I always feel. I'm trying to get back to the kitchen table, and I am the, too, brother. I these, am too, man. These these kind of conversations are what does you know this this kind of uh, into close conversations is what happens. And I would invite people. I mean, I I know a lot of people, but I don't, you know, I'm starting to have conversations again. I'm starting to actually meet new people. And I'm starting to say, let's have a conversation. You know, we don't know what it's going to be. I don't want anything from you. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about your life. Tell me about your life. I was thinking on going to golf school so I can finally have some friends again. (laughs) (laughs) That's all anybody's doing. It's golf. It's the only time they ever get together. And I thought, geez, I'm not going to golf. I don't need that bourgeois crap in my life. What? And now I'm thinking, boy, you know, I just got an email from a buddy. I went to university with the day. There's four of them golfing in Nova Scotia. They had a big golf tournament out West a couple of years ago. You know, nobody wants to go salmon fishing. So (laughs) anyway, yeah, you'll play. Listen, I'm going to play through, but I'll stop along the way. I never thought I'd say it. I'm going to go to golf school. Dear God, what's happened to me? It's okay. You'll you'll have it's okay, convers- you know. It's okay. You'll have conversations. Yeah. You'll go do what you want to do. As long as you can connect with people. I don't care what it is. We have a we have a club out here called the Outrigger Club and it's people paddling a boat together. That's going to be amazing. We're going to do it this weekend. But Ron, I can't thank you enough. Where do they go? Where do they go to find out about your book and and to look at your stuff? Where do they go? You can go to my website, ronjames.ca. ronjames.ca. Yeah, it's not .com in Canada, it's .ca. RonJames.ca, and they can find the book. Or else they can go to Penguin Random House. I'm on sale in Penguin Random House, and there's audio, there's ebook, and there's hard copy, and it hits the shelf September the 28th. And in the States, it's Barnes & Noble, Amazon as well. But my, uh, my Facebook page is Ron James Comedy, capital R, capital J, capital C, my Instagram is Ramblin' Ron James, and Twitter is The Ron James Show, capital T, capital R, capital J, capital S. Very good. The book is called All Over the Map. We've been all over the map with Ron James, and this is nice. This it. is a nice conversation. Yeah. This has been a, a, a wonderful conversation, folks. I. Uh, mm. It's so nice to talk earnestly and to just um, just share some realities of the day, fearlessly, actually. It's been okay. a pleasure talking okay. to you, brother. Oh, it's lovely, Ron. Thank you so yeah. much. You too, Jennifer. Pleasure, Ron. Take care of yourself. Okay. Well, that's our show for this week. I want to thank Ron James for being so wonderful. Really interesting guy. 
conscious guy, funny person, very creative, and really honest, which is uh, such a great combination to be. He's a great guest. So thanks to Ron. Go find Ron's book all over the map. Go on Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Look for ConnectedParenting.com. Connected Parenting is Jennifer's organization. Amazing work, resilient skills, media, books, classes, all kinds of things to help you and your family live happier and healthier. ConnectedParenting.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Write us. Let us know what's going on. Write to ed at makelight, one word, makelightmedia.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe a vous, si vous play, if you pardon my French. And go to, uh, go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or the Believe Network, B-L-E-A-V.com, Believe Network. Great to have you along. Take care of yourselves. Stay well. Watch what you say to yourselves in your head. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We'll see you next time. 